we can imagine a different kind of society. What would that look like? And some of the things that it looks like there, you can actually practice here and now. It is about just consciously being better towards each other. And at each step of the way, we're learning more about what the other is. So it's not just about the other being black and white. And also, I think part of it is calling out things that you're just not comfortable with. I don't think it's too much to ask for people to be more thoughtful, to unlearn, actually. Welcome to Courageous Conversations, a podcast exploring the intimate side of activism. I'm Gillian Riley. And I'm Jen Warren. And through these interviews, we seek to understand what it really takes to show up and make change during this critical time in history. In an effort to become more effective change makers. Yes. Ultimately, our aim is to promote authentic engagement as a vital component of social justice and social change. Mandisa Shandu is co-director and an attorney at the activist organization Ndafunu Nkwazi, Kosa for Dare to Know. A graduate of the University of Cape Town Law School, she heads Indifuno Ikwazi's law clinic. Through her work, Mandisa seeks to advance urban land justice in the city of Cape Town by providing legal support and advocacy to communities and social movements. From a middle-class family, Mandisa had every opportunity to ride the wave of the new South Africa towards corporate success. But she felt a different calling. She dared to know and to act. Mandisa has made a career of stepping out of her comfort zone to fight for the dignity of her fellow South Africans. In our conversation, Mandisa takes us through her fight for equal access to housing, education, and employment opportunities for all. Here is a driven social activist with a clear sense of place in South Africa's struggle for social justice, a struggle that Mandisa vividly describes as far from over. I'm Mandisa Shandu. I work at Ndufunugwazi as the co-director, where I also practice as an attorney. And you are the daughter of activists, aren't you? You have activism in your blood. I guess you could say so. Not activists by profession, <laughs> but certainly in the 80s, they were quite active in terms of resisting apartheid at the time. And you left home and went to boarding school, is that correct? Yes, I went to boarding school when I was eight years old. Wow. Yeah, big wow. <laughs> big wow. And safe to assume you were among the only black students at the school? Oh, or was definitely, it? definitely. I was in grade four and there were four black students. I was one of them in a class of maybe 25. That's just a sprinkle. How did you experience that? How did you feel in being that child in that environment? You know, I think at that age, that wasn't the thing that made me necessarily feel different. But I certainly later in high school, when you start thinking about the world and engaging and realizing that actually, hey, this is a big part of my identity, being black, being in the so-called minority in the school, whereas mm. black people are a majority in the country. You became a yeah. little bit more politicized? Is oh, that 100%. A... I think it's just obviously with growing and with age and exposure to a whole lot of things that you become aware and that identity matters and that kind of space actually is ground for assimilation and almost thinking that this shouldn't be the norm, that black people feeling like we are adopting certain ways of speaking, of doing things, because this is what a societal norm is, a mm. white societal norm is. Certainly that's something became increasingly aware of late in high school. And as you became aware of the big questions, 
How did you manage them personally? Did you find yourself getting involved in politics or activities outside yourself, or did you keep it a very personal journey that you were on? When I was in high school, I was big into the arts. I think it was the first time I was learning or thinking about this concept of justice, of acting on your conscience, even if that doesn't appear to be the right thing to do. And in the context of South Africa's history, that's what a lot of the liberation movement was about. But then also feeling unsettled in that this is not all done, you know, we haven't gotten to utopia, so to speak. So both internal and external, but coming to me in the form of arts. So it's the new South Africa and you are 16, 17 years old in... Urban Natal, in Pizza Maritzburg. Oh, okay. And at that point you are coming alive to your own identity. Sure. And the possibilities for expression because it sounds like that's kind of what the arts provided you, is a a space to express. And I think maybe the difficulty or the tension is that by 94, I was obviously very young, like Mm. four or five, and I remember in our early grades, one of the most exciting things to do was to draw this new flag. And there was just a lot of, this is the new thing, and you kids are going to be the new generation. And this constant euphoria, but, as soon as things kind of settle and you wake up the next day in a room full of people, you're like, who are you? (laughs) And that's, I think, the kind of awakening that took a few years for us to get to, that we're here together, but our journeys and our stories are certainly not the same, and we need to acknowledge that. Part of that is not because of chance, it's structural. It's because of the laws of the previous system, the governing structures, the rules of the day that's informed how we are to be. We are in the same place and we've been able to just kind of hold hands and pretend like it's okay, but it's not okay. It's fundamentally not. It was that kind of awakening in my early high school days that led to, you know, there's something to be done. And did you feel that sense of we're the generation that's going to make the fundamental change? That it was within your power to start to reshape this incredibly unequal, unjust society? I don't think I would have articulated it like that at that point in time. It was more about owing a service of sorts to do something better, a responsibility to people who have less than. Surrounding yourself with like-minded people who are also acting. That for me was a fundamental. There's something that can be done in terms of the lawyer I want to be. Most of the time, these are actually stories Mm. with people behind them and people with different views and different visions of what society should be. So in our work, we actually have introduced theater as a means of telling the legal stories or addressing a legal problem. And also in terms of really pushing a different vision and imagination of how our city can be different. And we just have to be creative about how we get information and ideas Mm. across. And how you try to create connection. Because it seems to me that's part of what a story can do. Absolutely. Did you have a clear vision early on of your own potential career within law? I did. There's so much to be done. And as a lawyer, there's a potential in the specific role to practice in areas around addressing inequality, around addressing discrimination, around addressing an inability to access socioeconomic rights specifically. This is the kind of stuff I want to do. And as a young black woman, did you feel that the legal system was a space in which you could 
exercise your power? <laughs> Almost every judgment is written by a white male. Mm. <laughs> and so if you think of ideas of, you know, where do I go with this career? Maybe there's a ceiling for people like me. I was active in the Black Lawyer Student Forum. And for me, that was important. It was important that we had a space where we could discuss some of these identity issues and also accessing opportunities. But certainly when I first started practicing, I felt a little disoriented because I did my articles at a huge law firm. And <laughs> in the hugeness of it, there were still sprinkles of black people. Just the very corporate nature of that world also just almost cemented the idea of white male equals success, equals clients, equals money. And I struggled with it, but it does two things. It makes you feel that you have to work three times harder to be recognized. At the other end, you do the work and you feel tokenized <laughs> that this is the black who's going to speak to the first years. The other extreme is you also feel excluded. You don't actually get to say nothing because if you say nothing and what you do rather is you cement the norm and close the door for others because it will be, oh, Manisa was fine with it. You're just being dramatic by right. saying something. And I think it's just the confidence of knowing with conviction that I'm as capable and, you know, your racist views of the world isn't going to get in the way of my ability to mm. do my job. These things are layered, but at whose cost? Right. I think it's such a relevant conversation now in the context of all types of discrimination where people look at those incidents and say, well, why didn't you speak up? You know, you seemed okay. And I think what you're describing is this day-to-day -day managing of relationships and fitting in and... Yeah, I think I'm a lot less apologetic now. Mm. Apologizing actually means compromising. And what we're apologizing about can't be compromised for. Why am I apologizing for my presence? Why am I apologizing for my identity? Why am I apologizing for being angry or being hurt or being mad? I think we have the right to feel those ways. We're trying to manage and just get through, you know, the day to days. But no, we do get to say how we feel and state that we're here. Actually, mm -hmm. first and foremost, we're here. Absolutely. I look around the world now and I'm inspired by even younger people who are saying no, or as you say, not apologizing. I think the Marikana massacre for people such as myself who grew up post-apartheid was a real game changer in terms of if we were to believe that society had changed, that black bodies matter more now. That's event undid all of that. It undid all of that because what the Marikana massacre was about was people fighting for a more dignified, more equal life and being killed for that. And so it challenges what the post-apartheid state is in that we've got now access to civil political rights, right to vote, freedom of movement, freedom of speech, all of these things. But when it comes to it, when it comes to the essentials for human survival, what you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep, that kind of post-inequality we haven't arrived at. And Maragana in 2012, the state's involvement before, during, after was revealing of the state of the state. It was a state that was, is, <laughs> more closely aligned with capital 
than is concerned about black bodies. And so what affected me and I'm sure many others is just how could this happen and how is nobody taking responsibility mm. knowing where we're coming from, coming to the core of this huge inequality that is, I think, hanging over the whole of South Africa. You just have to be bold to start addressing it. Mm. And so that to me really was a game changer because almost just felt like, you know, roll your sleeves up and get to work. I certainly was in a position of having a choice of which side of history I want to be on. And it just took some time to have the courage to then act on that. Mm. And while you're processing all of this, you're sitting behind your desk at this <laughs> corporate law firm. I remember, <laughs> this is not how I see the world. Mm. <laughs> But I also felt like it's also not my duty or responsibility to teach and to inform. And what my responsibility is, is to find a space within which I feel that I can use what I have and what I know in a better way. To leave the place better than I found it. And when I think about every single thing that has happened, how can I put this? To test our ability to survive, actually. And all of those things that our ancestors had to overcome so that we can be where we are, that really gives power, courage to do something about it. It's not just a personal thing for mm. me. And it's that kind of collective feeling or motivation is what it is. So do you feel like you've had that sense of purpose? You talked about duty and service mm. that shaped you throughout your life. There's different moments in life where it's far more clear but yeah, I think so. And I'm lucky <laughs> to have that sense. I think a lot of people do struggle with what is this for? Yes. What am I here for? So what was the final sort of catalyst, if you will, that allowed you to make the move from <laughs> corporate law to social justice? The decision was more of when do I come back to myself, my dreams, my goals? Because the more time you spend doing what's not for you, the less time you're actually fulfilling your purpose mm. you refer a lot to tapping into something deep yeah you know a deep sense of intuition or purpose or something mm. very very much an internal compass if you will that mm. is guiding you is that something that you're very attuned to even today as you navigate these incredibly complex issues is that something you turn to quite a lot yeah i think it just maybe comes from the practice of meditation, just being self-aware, just slowing down, understanding what it is that you're going through. Sometimes it's really great, sometimes it's not. And I think that's important, particularly in a position of leadership, because if you're having a whole lot of stuff going on, that energy flows and is picked up on by people. So I think that it is important to take that time to have some sense of mental and emotional clarity. It's not easy. No. <laughs> There's some days that are just so difficult and it's not as clear and you aren't able to act on your intuition. But I think that definitely helps with figuring out and knowing your direction, which then allows you to act, but also to lead and also just for a sense of conviction. Do you describe yourself as a leader? I mean, well, <laughs> do you own that title? Like sure, this is actually quite a layered question. In terms of, you know, self-accountability and relation to your other relationships as well, not just in the office space. 
yes, while I am officially a leader at work, it's as important as to also allow and create opportunities for others to also lead because that self-leadership, I think, is absolutely critical as mm. well. So we refer to it at work, it's a feminized structure, which is more horizontal. And so what that allows for is for people to actually claim and ascend and grab their opportunities of individual leadership. We then are able to better learn from each other. And I think it's stronger that way. So let's go into that space. It's sort of post-Americana. You've arrived at Ndufunui Kwasi. And what was your first kind of role there in your first cases? What kind of Ooh. work did you start digging so into? That was a huge shock to my system. The first matter that we worked on was the Kailicha Commission of Inquiry into Policing. A commission into assessing the breakdown in the relationship between communities in Kailicha and the police. They don't feel protected and therefore in some instances take the law into their own hands through vigilante action for example. And a lot of people will know about the high crime rates, but at the end of the day, the people who are most affected are predominantly the people living there, the women and the children who are raped, whose family members are, are stabbed, who are killed, and so on and so forth. Just very, very horrific stories that people have had to endure on a day-to-day -day basis without really too much recourse. A completely unequal distribution of resources and just things that would make people feel safer, like streetlights, for example, are absent. And so my role there was working with the legal team in preparing the various documents that had to be thousands and thousands of documents we had to sift through, preparing questions, preparing heads of argument and so on. So still in a legal role. I hadn't been immersed in this kind of space before, having grown up in Peter Maritzburg and Newcastle in pretty much an isolated urban setting not too much engagement in these issues that people are dealing with in townships. And Kailicha specifically being, unlike Soweto and others, you know, came about in early to mid 80s. So a lot of its issues are actually post-apartheid issues, mm. right? And so we are grappling now with how the promises of the new era translate in a space like this, mm. if they can at all, you know. So intersecting of a host of various issues mm. around this policing issue, from education to health to so many issues that people are grappling with. Being immersed in that space, it would be very difficult to kind of park and shelf and move on. For me, one of the most fundamental lessons wasn't necessarily a legal one per se, but a learning of a whole community who are trying to come out of a trauma. Mm a traumatized community because these things will affect you individually and then collectively you know people don't even get a chance at a better chance that inherited collective trauma and the various things that people do to try to get out of it and crime may be one of them what happens when you dig into those deeply complex issues and take on some degree of responsibility for trying to shift them in some way what's going on with you personally Yo, I think definitely overwhelmed just because it was just so much. The kinds of issues were so complex. But I remember at the end of that commission feeling, I think probably the most hopeful. And that hope came from a sense of, there's something that's happening here. There's some kind of power that's being disrupted. 
And that is coming from the people bringing and sharing their stories and simply saying that we deserve a whole lot better. And going forward, you could work in any one of those issues that were raised. And I mean, even sanitation was raised in the context of this. So there's so many things that come up and it's just about acknowledging that there's potential here for us to come together again in this huge kind of powers <laughs> that we've created and doing something. Just tapping into that, that's what gave me hope. And certainly we are concerned with this idea of building a counter power, of coming together around issues, of imagining something different and acting on it. And is the law a strategic way to create that counter power? Is it working in terms of beginning to level out some of the injustices and the inequalities? I think so. I mean, if you have a toolbox of various things you could pick up and try to do something, the law is definitely one of them, but it would be short-sighted to think of it as the only thing, especially because we know how our legal system currently is. A lot of people don't have access and very few cases that actually deal with these issues get to court or get to final resolution. And so we have to be more concerned, I think, about the impact of the case itself, but also of actually changing issues. So in this climate, activist lawyers have to push themselves, other platforms, other spaces, other ways of engaging with our clients, but also with political and other structures are increasingly important toward effecting any kind of change. It's being a lawyer plus so much more. You've talked about assimilating into whiteness from the time that you were at school, this corporate law firm. You're now a social justice activist, an activist lawyer. Are you both using the law to disrupt society and in some ways trying to disrupt the legal system itself? I think it's more of just an acknowledgement that these aren't neutral spaces. Mm. Because courts aren't necessarily, they aren't neutral. <laughs> we almost have to accept that we have to view that as a site of struggle as well and contestation. And then the challenge is how do we then bring that into our papers, into our argument. But I also think importantly, how do we bring people in? It comes back to what I said earlier, not saying something means that it's okay, right? And so you have to be bold and take the risk. And you talk a lot about the language that you use within the legal system and the stories that you tell to bring identity and dignity to your clients, that you're very deliberate mm. about how you present your cases, that you're aware this isn't a neutral space and that you have an opportunity to start to shift it merely by how you show up mm. within it. These false hierarchies that you create actually alienate people more and just make the struggle that much more difficult. But at the end of the day, if our issue that we are trying to advance is housing, we need to meet on humanity grounds, mm -hmm. you know. You have relationships with the people. hundred percent, yeah. That strikes me as a massive responsibility. You are helping guide them through a system mm -hmm. that on the surface is meant to deliver justice. <laughs> yeah. And in so doing, I mean, you obviously can't control the outcome, but you're expected to utilize that system to the best of your extent of power. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's not easy to navigate we're part of this movement, we're part of this activism together. And so you do build relationships and get to know people very personally. But what I find to be helpful is to be very clear of what it is I can and can't do. Mm. And to say that out loud. We are going to do this together. And so that's a responsibility shifting or adding <laughs> that is critical. 
and that deeper kind of knowledge transfer so that people feel a lot more equipped to take responsibility for some of their own issues. Having very clear kind of markers of this is what I'm capable of doing well and this is what I'm actually either not capable of doing or not available to do and saying that. You've described now just setting boundaries and expectations. Like anybody, doctors, social workers, people yeah. who are confronted with trauma at a certain point find ways of not letting it all seep in maybe the way that they did when they first started. Are you conscious of your own emotional boundaries or coping mechanisms shifting and shaping as you carry on in this career, your journey as an activist? Yeah, yo, that's a tough one because that's an ongoing one. You know, you almost have to go through something to learn how you're going to cope with it. I'm aware of a time when I was just maybe taking on too much. And this is part of the lesson that I just explained now of then yes. just saying, actually, not me or not right now. And there's also been some moments where I just feel physically unsafe in the work. And how you manage or how I learned to manage is just a slowing down. Like if I don't feel safe physically, I'm not going to be able to do the work mentally. And just saying, you know, this is physically where I feel okay and I'm going to come out when I'm ready. And having a work environment that allows myself and others to actually articulate and say that is important. The overarching thing is that we can appreciate that these are long-term struggles, that we can't have an overnight thing, a turnaround with some of the issues. And as soon as you're aware of that, it's about well, how do we keep going? Because of the nature of the issues, they're so close to us. It feels like this is our baggage. We have to do everything right now. And it's not like you can, you know, just put your file away and then, no. you know, you're done for the day. You take it into your day because it's real life. It's all around you. Well, and that's the flip side of calling and purpose. You don't get to shut it off. It's wonderful in yeah. that it's a wonderful sort of sense of direction, but it isn't something that you do. It's who you are. And with that comes a need to do everything that you've described doing. Be very, very, very aware of how that sense of purpose is best utilized and expressed over time. Yeah, the I mean, you, you won't get there if you're burned out, right? No. Nope. <laughs> or if you just keep going to the point that you're just so angry and no longer hopeful. Not to say that that anger is not valid, but there certainly are ways to to keep going and also another thing that I think is so critical is just to have fun mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. you know I mean these issues are so serious they are so grave they're so heavy but what we have around us are people people who are creative who are talented mm. and also just you know have fun in the struggle because people forget to you mentioned anger which I think is so important because a lot of activism is driven by it mm. and rightfully so an incredibly powerful emotion and many of us feel it about the state of the state and I wonder for you who spends her every day deep in those issues you know the lived experience of the things that we write about or tweet about you're there you're in it is anger a sort of lived emotion that you tap into strategically if you will to keep getting you to that passionate place it's not something I've necessarily monitored. I mean, there's some days where I'm a lot angrier than others. Some days where I'm a lot more hurt, disappointed. But I think as long as that anger doesn't evolve into something that's hate, that's then it's completely valid in the space. Or apathy, right? 
sometimes you don't even know you're angry or hurt until afterwards. For me, those feelings just come from when you see decisions being made or taken without any regard to humanity, without any regard to how you're perpetuating inequality, with just a sense of arrogance. That's the kind of thing that makes me angry. Am I doing something about it on a daily basis? Probably not. But I think that's more an issue of being a South African issue as opposed to related to my work issue. Surely we deserve better. Mm -hmm. Surely we can do better. I feel and I think people are experiencing this sense of wanting to do something to mm. try to tip the, scales. tip the scales a little bit. I think that we're in a time of people working out where they can and should influence. I wonder about that too as a, a young woman engaged in the struggle, a struggle. You talked about a sense of your ancestors and a sense of connection to history and past. Do you feel a sense of connection to the struggle that preceded you? Oh yeah, definitely. It could be easy to kind of feel like this is not what people fought for. I would say that it misses, I think, a part that this was the start of something new and we are constantly at the forefront of something new, something better. I respect the struggle that preceded us. The men and women, especially, who are invisible in these stories, but to appreciate that doesn't mean that that's where it ends and to feel connected to that. That struggle is just so deep within us as South Africans, mm. particularly black South Africans. And it's that connection that is fertile ground for continuing. And as you look to the future, I mean, we're in a very specific moment right now having this conversation with a new president. I'm not too hopeful at this point. I'm not too hopeful just in the sense that I don't think that the kind of restructuring that's required is going to come asymmetrically from government. We have a role as citizens, civil society, to do the kind of pushing, edging on. And the scary part is that because of the desperation of a lot of people, it's going to be a long and difficult journey, I believe. Currently, we know that people are dying in struggles for access to housing, being killed by the state for place, for a few square meters to live. And the more we understand the inequality and the effects, the anger, the isolation, the exclusion that comes from it, we aren't thinking deeply enough about these issues. People putting themselves, their bodies on the line. It's in that knowing that you feel, well, we remove ourselves from the room, it's going to be the same, if not worse these kinds of fights are going to continue. Mm. And are you going to keep fighting them? <laughs> well, you know, right now, today, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> mm. I'm going to say yes because I think it's too important, not for a self thing, but for society as a whole thing, to let these issues go. Thank you so much. Yeah. Amazing. Talk about an old soul. Mandisa has such a sense of place within South Africa's broader social justice narrative, and understanding that this is a story with deep roots, a story with an ending that Mandisa cannot write on her own. And so many of us are trapped within reactive outrage on social media and the news and conversation. How can we tap into some of what she's got? How can we challenge the status quo and what would it look like for us to start showing up in a way that begins to disrupt inequality? 
Mm, Mandisa seems to have a wisdom that there's something bigger at play, that her work goes all the way back to her ancestors and to her parents' struggle for equality in South Africa. And this kind of wisdom creates space, space for all of us to become more mindful of our own behavior, our everyday choices, how we relate to each other and build stronger relationships. If we can claim this space of everyday mindfulness that Mandisa embodies, maybe we can rewrite this story over generations and begin to imagine the truly different kind of society that she's working towards. Courageous Conversations is supported by the Ford Foundation and produced by Jen Warren, with music courtesy of Benjamin Verdery. Follow us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Courageous Conversations. You can also visit gillianreilly.com slash podcasts for more information or to listen online. And we have a new website. Visit soundpage.fm slash courageous conversations. Thanks for listening.